everyone, welcome to EU Confidential, or as we like to think of ourselves, the More Than Brexit cast. Uh, we are the number one EU politics podcast, but I'm going to be very honest with you, it's a not very crowded market, so take that <laughs> as you wish. <laughs> My name's Ryan Heath, I'm the political editor at Politico Europe, so think of me as kind of like the EU geeky version of Laura Koonsberg. And we have an hour that is overflowing with good news today. So at the start of the good news is that this is double our normal episode length, so you get double the fun by being here today. Next up, our very special guest is Emily Thornbury, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, so we are very excited to have you here, Emily. Third, I've got my two amazing colleagues at the London Playbook, Jack Blanchard and Annabelle Dixon. The London Playbook's our flagship product, it comes out at 7am every morning, it's your guide to the day ahead in British politics. Clearly better than Redbox, but I, I, I won't, can't say I won't go directly uh, into the competition, oh um, but there you have it. I'm, I'm known for going off script, and I've done it again. Fourth, Lena Rabarus, stand-up Lena. Lena is our regular podcast panellist, and she has literally interrupted her bachelorette party to join us today, so we, wow. we thank you there. Andrew Gray, who is our EU editor, based in Brussels with me. And finally, unlike every other bloody podcast at this festival, we are going to do so much more than Brexit. So that is the, <laughs> the totality of the good news. Before we dive into to hear directly from Emily, I wanted to quickly kick off with a, a bit of a, a reading, a neutral reading from my colleagues Jack and Annabelle. Guys, what is your latest on the state of play on the UK side of Brexit? Oh, it's going really well. Uh, <laughs> everything's going really smoothly and we should be out of the EU by the end of... Nobody knows when. Um, so the, as we probably everyone in the room knows, we have cross-party talks happening potentially as we speak, but certainly over the weekend and into tomorrow as the government and the opposition try and find some way uh, of making this whole thing work. I would say the talks have, they've not been a disaster so far. Nobody says that, they haven't fallen apart, but we have yet to see a big move by either side that would potentially break the deadlock. But obviously time is ticking on. There is a very big EU summit happening in Brussels on Wednesday when uh, a decision is going to have to be made over whether Britain leaves the EU on Friday or indeed has a further extension, how long it should be. Theresa May really needs to be going into that summit with a plan, and as things stand, she hasn't really got one. So the next, I would say, 48 hours are going to be very interesting indeed. If something comes out of these talks, it needs to happen quickly. That's basically mm -hmm. where we are. They're, they're very much happening in a sort of closed room, and we get mm -hmm. little whispers, and maybe Emily gets little whispers. She can tell <laughs> us what she thinks is really going on. But no one really knows the exact state of play. Yeah. Now, Annabelle, you called it right on Friday. Have you got any predictions you want to lay on the table as oh we gosh. get started? Um, I think that was more luck than anything. <laughs> no, obviously, it was my perfect sourcing. I mean, we've had the Sunday shows this morning, which always moves things along a bit. So we've had a bit of sort of commentary from Andrea Ledsom, who's suggested maybe they'll try and bring that back the vote again next week. Fourth time lucky. Fourth time lucky. Excellent. And um, that if that fails, a no-deal Brexit just wouldn't be that bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then um, Rebecca Long-Bailey, one of Emily's colleagues, said that if we were heading towards a no-deal, you know, maybe Labour might consider actually revoking Article 50. So we're very much seeing, you know, members of the cabinet and the different factions of the different parties have been out briefing this morning. And I think it's fair to say that actually everyone's in their positions. You know, you can see those splits laid bare this morning between the different factions of the different parties. Yep. So, yeah, I think sort of as we were, really. Yep. <laughs> well, on the EU side, I think it's definitely the case of turn up with a plan or a majority or it's going to be no dice 
at this summit. So that means striking some kind of deal with Labour or miraculously getting a majority in the Commons. And if either of those things happen, the EU is going to go for an extension. They will do that. They won't. They will be too afraid to to, to do anything else. But at the same time, um, I think that there's a, a great irony involved in that as well which is that the biggest party in Europe, the European People's Party, if they agree to an extension, they're basically agreeing to sending 25 or 30 Labour MEPs back to Brussels, puts the Socialists back in the number one position, or it forces the EPP to rely on the votes of Viktor Orban to get something like the European Commission presidency. So, you know, the irony there is Theresa May, having not consulted with your party for quite a long time, might end up installing a Socialist as European Commission president nice. uh, as the the full stop on her <laughs> Brexit negotiating period. On that happy note, um, <laughs> let's bring Emily into the conversation. And I'm sorry, we are going to have to start on Brexit. Maybe you can kick us off. Yeah. yeah. Emily, were you pleased to see the uh, Labour Party leader going into talks with Theresa May? And do you, do you think she, do, she is now ready to compromise? Do you believe that she is going to move this time? So I was pleased to see that we finally got the invitation in to talk. I have to say that it should have happened two years ago. When she lost her majority, the truth was was that the, the British people didn't like what she was planning to do. So at that stage, she should have actually started talking to us, and she didn't. We have been, I think, I know, I know the commentary doesn't say this. I know that this is contrary to the, to the vibe. But I think we've been pretty clear about what it is that we want. I think that we've been pretty clear that we want to be in a customs union. We want to be close to a single market. We want to have dynamic alignment of rules and regulations. And we want to be in EU institutions, particularly those that keep us safe. And we've been saying it and saying it and saying it and saying it. And we've been you know, trying to kind of engage with them, but they won't have it. And with minus four days to go, they decided that they would invite us in. And that's fine. You know, we have been calling. I mean, Jeremy, at her last, his last conference speech said, you know, my door is open. Come and talk to me. Let's see if we can sort this out. But the bottom and top of it is this, is that compromise means change on both sides. And, and I think if you look at what it was that we were whipping for last week and the week before, you know, there were certain things that were put on the table that aren't closely aligned with our policy. So this, whatever it's called, Europe 2.0, the being in a single market and being in a customs union is not actually our policy, but we still voted for it. And I think that's a pretty good signal that we're prepared to compromise and we're prepared to look at what might work. But we've yet to see any movement on their side. Do you think she will move? Do you get a sense from talking to Jeremy, from talking to people who've been in those talks, that actually she is now of a mind to change her mind? All I can tell you is that she hasn't done that so far. So, you know, and as I say, we're there. You know, we're there and we'll, we're happy to talk. I mean, there's, there's the additional issue, which is if something does come out, so when the music stops, you know, what it is that we are left with, hopefully that we are left with some sort of deal, It'll be a compromise. And the question will be, is this what anybody wants? <laughs> you know, will we end up with a compromise that just makes everybody unhappy? Um, I think whatever it is, it'll be controversial. And I think that in those circumstances, it's right for us to be saying to the British people, during that referendum, did you vote for this? Do you want this? You know, when you said you wanted to leave, did you want to leave like this? Or Given that this is the this is what's been hammered out after two and a half years, three years, you know this is what this is what's on offer. So is this what you want, or do you want to remain? And I think that we're kind of I think we are in a situation where a confirmatory referendum is appropriate. I think that if something clear had come out after the general election, or even before the general election, if it had come out you know faster after the referendum, we'd be in a very different position. But I do think that 
after such a long period of time where there has been so little leadership from the Prime Minister that I think people have just got more and more dug in and it makes, it com makes compromise that much more difficult. So that's why I think that we're probably going to need to go back to the public to break the deadlock. Isn't the problem with that that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't actually agree with you? Well, he does. And, uh, and party policy is that we, we go for a general election. I mean, I just think that's kind of classically where we ought to be. I mean, I don't know, we don't have a written constitution, but, but our unwritten constitution makes it clear that if a government can't govern, then there should be another government. That's kind of like, you know, that would be my, my number one. But, you know, we're not getting anywhere with that. And then the conference policy says all options should be on the table. We are really trying to look at all options and to make sure that we have a Brexit that does the least amount of damage to jobs in the economy. And that's, those options will include campaigning for a public vote. Now, Jeremy's signed up to that. He's a Democrat, as I am. And, and the question is, how does this work? And, and we've been, as I say, we've been clear about what it is that we want, but we are, you know, just, I guess, hitting a you know, brick wall all so the time. One of the plans is finding some sort of compromise and, and putting that to a vote in Parliament, and it should obviously succeed if both front benches are signed up to it but then separately holding a vote on whether to have that second referendum. And there, it doesn't look like the numbers are there. So would you be satisfied with that, or do you think the whole thing just needs bundling together? Well, I mean, as you know, Rebecca Long-Bailey said this morning that we should have a referendum if we got no deal or a deal that would damage jobs in the economy. And I agree with her, though I personally think that any way in which we leave the European Union will damage jobs in the economy. So Even Labour's know, own idea. <laughs> Well, I mean, Labour's own idea would be to minimise the damage done to jobs in the economy, but I don't think anybody, if they're truly honest, can say that leaving the European Union is going to be a boost to jobs in the economy. I mean, some of the kind of crazier fringe on the ERG think that, but nobody else does. So, yeah, so I think that it, the two things need to go hand in hand, and I think that my views are fairly well known after the leaked letter from last week. You must have been devastated, that leaked, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't intend it to leak, you know, again, as, as is known, my daughter was ill and I wasn't able to go to, to, uh, to, to the Shadow Cabinet, so I wrote a letter from outside the hospital um, to my comrades in the Shadow Cabinet and one of them thought that it was appropriate to leak it. I mean, in the end, hey, you know, so what? That's what I think. What's your <laughs> 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 I mean, but I just kind of feel like, you know, we ought to be able to, you know, I, I am a great believer in collective responsibility. I think that it's decisions are made better if you can pool people's understanding and knowledge and expertise and, you know, in the politics that we all come from, we, we talk about it together in an atmosphere of trust and mutual respect and we come to a collective decision and we stick to it. And that's kind of what I think, and that's why I never leak and I never brief. What's your message to those Labour MPs, some of them inside the Shadow Cabinet, some officials in Jeremy Corbyn's office who say, we can't support this second referendum idea because it will cost us votes in those leave-supporting northern heartlands where we need them, areas where MPs from North London, if I can say, aren't always as in touch with, or that is the view anyway. What's your message to those MPs who say that? I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding sometimes because... Sometimes people think that they come from a, a leave seat. And a leave seat might be a seat where 65% of the population in the referendum voted to leave, or maybe 70%. I think the top one is 73, just like my constituency is 73% remain. Um, but, but the reality for a Labour MP is that if 65% voted to leave, what proportion of the 35%, the Remainers, voted Labour? And that's the ballast of a Labour vote. On top of that, there'll be some people who voted leave, but frankly, the majority will be Tories. And so I think it's important sometimes for people to kind of 
just just remember and to segment their vote and to remember that the vast majority of Labour voters want to remain. Now, we've bitten the bullet. We have triggered Article 50. We, as above everything else, are Democrats, and we ask the country to collectively make a decision, which is why we've been doing what we have. But for now, for people to think, the decisions that I make must be made on the basis that I come from a leave seat. And just like, you know, for me, if I was to make a decision on the basis that my seat is a remain seat, that would be wrong. What you have to do if you're in the national leadership is, is do what's right for the country as a whole. And that's why I thought it was good for the, you know, best for the country as a whole for us to abide by the results of the referendum because we are a democracy for heaven's sake. We had agreed to a referendum. We'd agreed to abide by its results. So that's what we had to do with a heavy heart in my case and with many other people. But, you know, if we're running into the sand like this, if we're absolutely getting ourselves stuck, then I'm afraid we need to go back to the people and to their good sense and to say to them, we don't think this is working, but tell us what you think. Well, at some level, the referendum might be the safest option for you. It feels to me as an outsider like Theresa May is trying to make you own Brexit now. She's trying to let it be Labour's turn to tear itself apart over Brexit. And you can punt that off as well if you go for the referendum. Well, no, I just think that, as I say, I, d I mean, I th obviously there are differences in, in my party. Obviously there are. And, and actually, if you look at us, you know, the very fact that you know, there are seats that are labelled as remain and seats that are labelled as leave, and that we have a mixed electorate and that we have a variety of views, has meant that we've had to approach this in a very different way. And we, d we, are a, we have a great benefit of being a, a democratic party. I mean, our manifesto was not written by two people in a back room, like Theresa May's. You know, we have a democratic process, uh, you know, whatever it's called, an Article 5 process, where the party, are half a million members, are involved in deciding what our, pol what our policy should be in, the, in our manifesto. And, then, and that's, that was the respect the result of the referendum you know, policy. And then we had a conference decision, which was passed unanimously, which outlined what I've said earlier about what our policy should be mm -hmm. now. So kind of one can feel more secure in the Labour Party because, mm -hmm. because we do things collectively. Mm -hmm. As I say, I'm not pretending that there aren't stresses and strains. Of course mm -hmm. there are. You know, and they're open, and we're open about the stresses and strains, but mm -hmm. they're nothing. I mean, if ever I feel like we're fighting in the Labour Party, I just need to look across the aisle. <laughs> well, we have. <laughs> I, <think they. laughs> I was in uh, Poland last weekend interviewing Michel Barnier, the EU Brexit negotiator. And I had a very telling conversation, I thought, just before that interview kicked off. Mm -hmm. And it was with a former Polish minister mm -hmm. who said, I've seen this Brexit mess before. Mm -hmm. It's what happened under communism in my country. And it's what happens when you merge party interests with national interests and you just confuse the two. Yeah. Would you agree with that comparison about what's going on here now? Of course. I mean, look. I think that when all this happens, when all this finishes, we will need to look at how it happened. We will need to look at why it is that we spent billions of pounds on no deal. You know, why we spent, why, t why David Cameron had a referendum without telling the civil servants to prepare in case he lost the referendum. And also, frankly, we will need to look at a lot of cabinet minutes where they are discussing what's good for the Tory party and not what's good for the country. The reason that all this is being done at the last minute is because we had the Tory party for two years fighting amongst themselves as to what the offer to Europe should be. You know, the negotiation was with the Tory party and not with Europe. Are you talking about a public inquiry now? I'm talking about some form of inquiry that will, I mean, listen, we've got enough on our plate at the moment. <laughs> but, you know, just being, I mean, mm -hmm. just, just looking at, just looking above the immediate, mm -hmm. which is hard to do at the moment, 
But there are a number of things, there are a number of challenges that come out of this, and we should learn from it. We should learn from, is it okay to have an unwritten constitution? Do we need to tighten up our constitution a bit? Because the thing about having an unwritten constitution is that people need to be properly respectful of it. Mm -hmm. And if you have a prime minister like this one, who just says, well, I don't care if that's what normally happens, but I'm not just not going to do it. What are you going to do about it? And actually, that's, that's been part of the problem, has been that she's just been pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And it's very difficult to hold her to account because we don't have a written constitution against which we can, we can measure her behaviour. So when Labour comes to power after this, it's all over. You'd like to see some sort of big scoping inquiry into what went wrong, what went right, why this happened, how do we move forward? I think we can't have... I mean, listen, I don't... When Labour comes to power, we've got a lot to do. Yeah. <laughs> we've got a lot to do, and we've got a lot of things that we've got to do that will, that will you know, positively affect people's lives. And that will obviously be our priority. But I can't pretend that things have gone well and that we can carry on as we are. I think that the challenge of Brexit to our political system is a, is a profound one, and I don't think we should dodge that. But no, do I think that's more important than sorting out the housing crisis? No, I don't. Um, do I think it's more important than stopping selling arms to Saudi Arabia? No, I don't. I mean, there are like, there's a lots of different things right. that will, will be a priority, but this will need to be part yeah. of it, in my view. And we are definitely going to get to those topics. <laughs> One last question from <laughs> me before I Go pass on. to Annabelle. Um, MESS doesn't begin to cover it, but given that, shouldn't you be 10 or 20 points in front in the polls? Wouldn't, can't you imagine a scenario where if T Tony Blair, for example, was still Labour leader, Theresa May wouldn't be in Downing Street by now. She'd have been chased out of there. Well, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, forgive me for being a bit cynical about the polls because, you know, why did she have a general election last time? Because we were 20 points, 22 points behind in the polls. You know, do you remember they were saying it was going to be the end of the Labour Party, the Tories were going to be the natural party of the North and in Wales and here and there. That's why she had a general election. She was told that she could decimate the Labour Party. The polls, I suppose, say... If there was a general election tomorrow, which way would you vote? But it would be but a general election would be after a campaign. And during that campaign, we would certainly hope to have an uh, equal amount of airtime and and proper representation of what it is the Labour Party stands for. You know, when people talk to me, they say, Oh, you're so reasonable for a Corbynista. And I go, Well, yeah. You know, it's just it's quite difficult to actually get any airspace when you're the opposition. And when there are so many newspapers who just you know, just treat us as if we're nuts, and we're not. Politico is you know, a so wonderful non-partisan I'm venue. just saying, I'm just saying narrowing. that, you know, we had the biggest increase in the Labour vote, you know, since 1945 at the last general election. Um, and, you know, if we're just a couple <coughs> of points ahead in the polls at the moment, it's fine, you know? The only poll that matters is the general <coughs> election, and in a general election, I, I certainly believe that we would increase our popularity because people would hear what the Labour Party is really about. You might get an EU election as a bonus, but I'll come mm -hmm. to you next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Annabelle. I wanted to ask you about this personal toll that um, Brexit's taking on MPs. Yeah. Quite a lot of MPs have spoken out in recent days about, about it. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering what you've seen in the House of Commons and if you've experienced a, a sort of the personal stress of it. Well, it's quite stressful being in the leadership team at the best of times. And so I think you have to be fairly, fairly strong I come from a seat that was very marginal when I was first elected, and that was, that was quite a challenge. So I think, I mean, I've had kind of quite difficult times in the past, and so I know, I know that I, I'm, I, don't, I don't need to worry about that, those sorts of limits, I've, and I know that I'm actually quite strong. So I perhaps go into this with a bit more confidence, but I can't pretend that it isn't hard, because it is hard. And I can't pretend that I don't get abuse, because obviously I do. I get abuse from all sides. 
and, and continuing, and I can't pretend I don't get threats, and I can't pretend that I haven't had my security, and you know, all of that sort of stuff. But I do think, I think I'm right <laughs> by the approach I'm taking. I think like the contribution I'm trying to make to the future of the country is the right one. Mm. And so I think that kind of holding on to that belief really helps. I want to be able to make my country better and I want to be able to navigate us through these really difficult times. And so being given that opportunity and that huge honor to be able to do it, I'm gonna do it to the best of my ability. And yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's fairly hard. And, uh, and my husband could tell you a story, but he wouldn't. <laughs> but do you think it's affecting I mean you say you know actually you think you're right you're you're standing by what you think yeah I mean that some people have said actually MPs the way their voting has been affected by this do you think do you have you seen that do you think that is the case yeah but I the difficulty is it's quite difficult to talk about that sort of thing I'm afraid mm. just because of the whole security thing so just as I wouldn't go into details of the difficulties I may have with my security I'm not going to talk about the difficulties that other people have with their security. So I, I, I'm really sorry, <laughs> but it wouldn't be appropriate for me to go into details. And how do you switch off from Brexit? Everyone's so consumed by it, but what are you doing to sort of relax and not think about Brexit? I have a family and that really helps. And I watch a lot of stupid TV. What's the stupidest TV <laughs> you've watched this week? At the moment, believe it or not, in order to relax, I'm watching back episodes of Spooks. <laughs> and I have, because of my daughter being ill, I was just saying, you know, that I, there's a whole load of millennials in my house at the moment, all looking after my daughter. And, uh, and, we're <laughs> and we're watching Spooks from the 90s, and they're going, oh, look, is that what the 90s were like? <laughs> makes me feel so old. <laughs> Um, I got my absolute final Brexit question, and then we're moving on to the <coughs> second two-thirds of the podcast. We have heard a lot about now proven illegal activity in Leave campaigning and a lot of other allegations and, and, and scandals, mm. Mm. but it does seem to exist just in sort of certain quarters of the, mm. the public debate. Mm. And I'm wondering, wh what do you think the reason for that is? Or what's your view on those illegal activities? Is mm. it something that has to be revisited in an inquiry? Yeah, is it yeah. something that you know, we're eventually going to have to reconcile? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I'm sorry. When I'm talking about all the things that we need to look at, obviously we need to look at that too. You know, if I send out a leaflet, right, and I spell my agent's name wrong at the bottom of the leaflet, we can be prosecuted. You know, so the old-fashioned rules are really tight, but they haven't been upgraded for today's world. And so people take the mickey, mm -hmm. and we need to upgrade those rules. But before we do that, we need to be clear about how people have attempted to influence our democracy. Now, I don't go as far as Carol does, you know, where she says that the, the uh, democracy was actually influenced. I don't think that's right. I haven't met a single person who thinks that they voted to leave because of the Russians. I mean, I just don't think that's right. But I think that I'm not going to pretend that there weren't attempts made. And, you know, and we need to make sure that we have, we have proper investigations into what was done in order to make sure that we tighten up the rules to stop it happening again. Because we have to be, we are a democracy, we have to be confident that when we have elections, that those elections are fair. And as I say, applying rules that were, you know, stringent in the 19th century don't, don't work as well now. And that's what we need to look at. I have one last question, Brexit question too. <laughs> <laughs> Watching Becky Long-Bailey on the Marsha this morning, she, she suggested that if we, Britain suddenly finds itself 
heading out of Europe without a deal, potentially at the end of this week, if the summit goes as badly as some of Theresa May's summits have gone in the past. At that point, she was asked, would Labour vote to, uh, vote to revoke Article 50 at the very 11th hour just to stop that happening? And she more or less said, well, she certainly said we'd think hard about it. Would you support that if it really was cliff edge on Friday night? Well, we've said that we'll do anything to stop no deal. So I think that answers it. You know, we'll do anything to stop no deal. You know, we cannot have no deal. No deal is completely and totally irresponsible and, uh, and, and beyond the pale. We will not contemplate no deal. That's that. So whatever needs to be done, stop no deal, we will do it. And that includes revoking on well, that, Friday? Well, that includes all the possibilities, and obviously you know what that includes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Different topic. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get too excited. No, I don't like it. <laughs> Inside the party. Oh, another jolly topic for you, uh, Emily. You'll have read the Sunday Times this morning. And if anyone hasn't, it's huge coverage of what it says is leaked emails about cases of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party and how they've been dealt with or not dealt with. What was your reaction to reading that story? How do you feel about it? I'm completely disgusted. I'm completely disgusted that this is continuing to happen. I just think it's really about time we sorted this out. I think if you look at a lot of the, the, the emails, they seem to go back to a time when we were going from one general secretary to another, but it's not acceptable. Some of the things that were said just turned my stomach, and the idea that these people are still in my Labour Party disgusts me. I mean, some of that you'll also have seen from the leaks that I make complaints myself, and you'll see from the reports that some of the complaints were about things that were said about me, but, you know, hey. Um, I don't want my, I don't want my children to be at school where they're meeting people who say I really like the Labour Party, but I couldn't vote Labour because you're anti-Semitic. I feel ashamed of that. I know I have I have a lot of friends who are Jewish. I'm married to somebody who's Jewish. There's there's I have Jewish people in my office. You know, they you know I have people who 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 are committed to the Labour Party because the Labour Party is. It encapsulates their values and believes that the Labour Party is the only progressive force in Britain that matters, and they dedicate themselves to it. That the idea that you know they are f struggling with remaining in my party, my party which has always been a party that has a, bra a brave and a, a proud anti-racist culture, the idea that this can be happening to my party is disgusting. I'm not pretending that there isn't anti-Semitism in society or in other political parties, but we hold the Labour Party to a much higher standard, and so we should, and it should be something that we're proud of. And um, I mean, I don't, I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day management of this. I'm not on the National Executive Committee. We have a separation. There's supposed to be the party dealing with it, and uh, elected politicians have a different role. So obviously, therefore, I don't know, you know the ins and outs of all of this, mm -hmm. um, I, and it would be, in a way, it would kind of be wrong <laughs> for me to, because that would be the very complaint that some people are making. But I'm just getting so fed up with it. Do you have any confidence that it is now an issue that is being dealt with as well as you would like it to be? Well, I think that there is certainly, I mean, uh, there are strong arguments that Charlie Faulkner should get an overview of this. I, I fully understand that. I, I fully understand why the Equality and Human Rights Commission have said that they want to, to look at this to make sure that you know, we're going in the right direction at the moment and that you know, the investigations have speeded up and that they're being sufficiently strong. I would be in favour of any of that. I just want it sorted. And are you disturbed by what seems to be evidence of interference in these sorts of cases from the leader's office where you would not have expected there to be? I don't know. 
I don't know. I mean, as I say, I don't know the ins and outs of it. I don't know the ins and outs of it. I mean, you know, when, when Shami Chakrabarti did her report, Shami was really, really badly maligned, you know, what she, because she went in to do his report, and everyone, and not everyone, and, the, and a minority of people sort of saying, oh, she's just ducking the issue, she's just, why hasn't she condemned X, Y, Z, you know, da, 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 why hasn't she found this person to be anti-Semitic or that? She, that wasn't what she did. What she said was, was that in, we have a problem, we need to deal with it, and the way to deal with it is to do it in a disciplined way. And the disciplined way is that we have something which is quasi-judicial, where, we where we're not influenced by outsiders, where elected politicians are not involved, where those who are making the decisions make it in a proper way, according to evidence, people are given a chance to respond, and then we deal with it in a firm way. That's all her report said, mm -hmm. was just that, you know, we need to kind of upgrade Labour's policies and Labour's processes to make sure that we deal with this in a way which is proper. And unfortunately, that wasn't implemented for a very long time. And that's kind of part of the problem. And when Jenny Formby became General Secretary, she said that she was going to do that. And, you know, and she has. But, you know, there's a backlog. And as I say, the, certainly from my reading of it, some of the more difficult issues seem to have arisen in between one general secretary and another. Now, it might be time to talk about your actual day job. Okay. Anyway. How about that? <laughs> 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 Foreign uh, policy and security policy. I'll let Annabelle uh, do the honours. So I thought one of the big, I mean, sort of the big question, probably if we weren't talking about Brexit all the time, would be China. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just wondering whether you as Labour Foreign Secretary sees China as friend or foe? Mm. I think that's an unresolved question. I think that without doubt we're heading for China's century. And so I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues. I think 10 years ago, if we were to ask ourselves whether China would have taken a leadership role on climate change, we would have laughed. And yet China has really changed the way in which it, it deals with this issue and actually is at the forefront and, and does take an international leadership in a way that we're not, the Americans are not, the people who you think would be, actually China has stepped up. I think there are also challenges for China. I mean, it is on the Security Council. It has a, a role to play when it comes to development, for example. And it's, you know, of course, it's fine, it's great, you know, that they're building roads through Africa. But in exchange, there seems to be a relationship with the extractive industries that is to China's benefit, obviously. There seem to be a whole lot of strings attached, but those strings are not. Your strings attached by way of governance or uh, you know, human rights or you ensuring that there is a, uh, um, a sharing of the wealth in the way that one would hope to. So you know, I think there's a problem with that. And I think that <coughs> it, kind of it also segues into you know, where is China going to be going in terms of its its own human rights, its own good governance. You, where is China? Ha you, we, we hear about what is happening, particularly to religious minorities and the way that they're being treated at the moment or to human rights in Hong Kong. And I think the challenge for China now and the challenge for the international community now is to, is to say to them, you, you have a really important role to play. You know, we want to be able to work multilaterally with you. We want to be able to, to push our world in the right direction. In some ways, there are great things that you're doing, but other things, ways we're concerned. One of the sort of live, very practical 
decisions that government have got to make at the moment is the issue of Huawei, mm. whether to include mm. um, Huawei equipment in mm. the 5G network. Mm. You'd be sitting around that table if mm. you were a foreign secretary. Mm. What's your view on that? Would you be comfortable with Huawei equipment in the 5G network? I mean, we're part of, of Five Eyes, and uh, which is a very important security relationship. And, and different countries seem to be pulling in different directions on that. And I think that's unfortunate. I think that our closest security partners and us should all be able to be a little clearer about what, what the problem is and for us all to be able to work together. And I think, frankly, the government and the, and the opposition ought to be fairly clear. I mean, I'm a lawyer. You know, I kind of go on evidence. I mean, I had the advantage of also being, because being right honourable means that I'm on something called the Privy Council, which means that I can be briefed oh, on Privy Council terms. We're going to get to that. In principle, it means that you can be briefed on things because you don't leak. Mm. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you can make decisions oh. based on evidence that perhaps wouldn't be available elsewhere. I would want to be briefed on it properly and I would want any decisions to be informed by evidence. I mean, I hear there are concerns if Huawei has been intercepting and if there's evidence of that then I want to hear it I want to see it and then we can make a decision based on that not just based on you know who the biggest boy on the block is who's telling us <coughs> what we should be doing and who could you possibly be referring to then? <laughs> 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 would you personally use a Huawei phone for example no <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> but I'm sure the Chinese know everything I'm doing anyway <laughs> 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 now, you're very outspoken for someone who is effectively applying for a diplomatic position within government. So I can think of the Khashoggi case, Brunei, also on issues like Trump. So thinking of, of Brunei, where you were, you were pro out protesting yesterday. Um, Outside the Dorchester. Exactly, and very, very clear in your views on the, on the Saudi regime as well. What's the next practical step the UK or others can take there? Are we talking just boycotts? Or can we move to sanctions against the Saudis and Brunei in these sort of extreme cases? I think there's a whole there's a whole range of different things you can do. I think actually the only kind of pretty much the only good thing that I I can really think of in terms of uh, us leaving the European Union <laughs> is that we can develop a much more robust sanctions regime because I think that the European one, whilst it's kind of all right, it's a bit pusillanimous, and I think that what we can do is develop something which is which is much sharper which is, I mean, the Americans have developed a most extraordinary system of sanctions, and we are a long way behind on that. I think targeted sanctions, which is not against, for example, you know, uh, an entire country, but against sort of particular people, I think will be really effective, particularly given, you know, London's place in the world, the fact that there are, you know, so many, so many youngsters who are educated here, whose parents are up to who knows what within the regime. You know, there's that, there's the buying of flats, there's the investing mm -hmm. in, the, in the British market. I think that we could do much more than we do at the moment. So I personally think that sanctions are a very important so-called diplomatic tool. But if we mm -hmm. want to exert pressure internationally, there's more than we could do that we've, we've been doing until now. So I'm a big fan of developing that. And actually, the sanctions bill that went through Parliament is now much tougher. It was introduced, actually, and we had put down some amendments. And then the, the Salisbury poisonings happened. 
And all of a sudden, the government was saying, oh, oh you, you know those amendments you were putting down? Well, actually, we thought of it first, and we're going mm -hmm. to be putting... Whatever, we said, you know, whatever. We don't care who, who claims it, but good if you're going to be doing it. But there's actually, there's more that could be done, and we keep pushing, you know, for more sanctions. So I think that's a, that's a really important tool. And then it depends on what the circumstances are. So in the end, you know, Britain is a... Britain's always worked multilaterally because we're a small country. And what we need to do is to work with other countries that share similar values to us, and so that that helps to amplify our voice. An example for me was when Canada spoke out against Saudi Arabia for arresting the women who had been involved in the protests to allow women to be allowed mm -hmm. to drive. Nobody stood with them, you know, and, and Saudi Arabia gave them a really difficult time and they had no friends. I would have liked to have been a foreign secretary in Britain who stood up with them and said they're right. Do you know what? You really shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> and to encourage other nations that have similar values to us to stand together. So I think working multilaterally has, is, in, is, is the best way of doing things, but actually it's also kind of comes from a certain amount of self-interest because mm -hmm. I think Britain does well in those circumstances because we tend to be fairly well informed, very well connected, have a lot of soft power. And actually, when we work multilaterally, that's when we are absolutely at our most effective. And in some areas, Britain is not small at all. Like, look at something like arms exports in mm -hmm, the Saudis. Mm -hmm, Britain's mm -hmm. quite big when it comes to that. Sure. And we've had this odd situation recently where, I mean, I, I don't understand. I don't understand how the continuing sales of arms to Saudi Arabia that are being used in Yemen is allowed within the arms export regime that Robin Cook introduced. Because I'm quite sure that Robin is turning in his grave. Mm. I don't believe that this is what Robin wanted. And I think it's wrong. I don't think that our, you know, our weaponry should not be being used by, by a state that is using it to, to kill innocent women and children. There was a, a, um, a hospital bomb just two weeks ago that was, had a lot of money from Save the Children. It was on the Saudis' no-strike list, quite clearly marked. You know, women and children were killed. What's going to happen? Yep. Are there any accountability? Well, the Germans have a ban. Right, so the Germans. Now, the thing about the Germans is, is that the Germans are basically not selling wings or major parts of play, but these little widgets. So for a minimum amount of, of, of pain, they're having a major effect. So because they have decided to not sell arms, therefore, any of the planes that we've been bu building are not allowed to be sold because there's a German kind of widget somewhere. And so it's not allowed, which is great. I was so pleased when I heard this. And then, and it's part of the, the, when, the, when, the when the German government was put together, the coalition was, uh, was a sister party of ours. And our sister party said, one of the conditions of going into coalition with you is that you're not to sell arms to Saudi Arabia, which was agreed. But then we've had the appalling example of the British Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, going out to Germany, trying to persuade the Germans to change their minds so that we can continue to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. So on the back of that, me and the, my equivalent in the, the German Socialist Party wrote a joint article in which I said, you know, good on you Germans, you're doing the right thing, you're doing what we should be doing, and support them completely because they feel as though they're they're isolated and that the rest of Europe isn't cheering them on. But actually, I think good people in the rest of Europe are cheering them on. And we just need to make sure our voices are heard. But isn't, isn't the reality that the reason that our government don't criticise Saudi Arabia heavily and indeed 
the American government heavily is because we rely on them so heavily for security reasons and that once you're in government you start to see that a lot more clearly and suddenly the sort of criticisms you can make in opposition become a lot harder to make. I don't think. I think that it is a one-way street at the moment or too much of a one-way street. You know, the excuse that we are given is that we continue to be close to the Saudis so that we can influence them. Well, how's that going? You know, how's it going? It's going really badly because if this is the Saudis with our positive British influence, Lord knows what it would be like without it. So I just think you know, there has to come a time when you just say, this is just wrong. It's just wrong what's going on, and we have to take a stand. I'm sorry, but I think so. And I, I've met a number of Democratic senators and Congress people when we were out in the States last year, most of whom seem to be standing for president now, eh, Annie? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it's nice to work with them and their reservations about continuing to sell arms to Saudi Arabia are echoed by ours. So even if the government doesn't act multilaterally, we, you know, we in the opposition are doing our best to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> My, uh, one last one, and then we've got to move to rapid fire, I think. I've, so I've, we have I've got one, one broader question, which is that the last foreign secretary, Boris Johnson, who you were, I know you're a big fan of, <laughs> he, it, it, whatever you think of him, he had what he felt was quite a clear vision for where Britain was going to be after his sort of Brexit. He had this global Britain idea of us being out and doing all these big trade deals with other countries around the world. Now, you support a customs union, or even better, in your opinion, no Brexit at all. Have you got your own vision for what Britain looks like after Brexit that's, that's oh, different yeah. to that? Because oh, yeah. Is it, is How it long not have just you got? <laughs> well, we've got about okay, a, minute, a minute and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Has it got a snappy title like Boris has had? Because that was kind of catching on till he quit, wasn't it? As people will probably worked out by now, I tend not to speak in sound bites. I apologise. But I think that we are an internationalist nation. That is what we are. And we should be proud of that, you know, because we have a place. And uh, actually, I think the world misses us. <laughs> I think that we have been swallowed up by Brexit and we have not had the energy or the headspace to be able to take the leadership role that we should be taking. We have two specific things that we're supposed to do. We've been given the pen by the Security Council to try to sort out peace in, guess where, Yemen. <laughs> what have we done? Right? We've been given responsibility for the Rohingya. Yeah? And although we're very good and when it comes to giving aid to, to the people of the Rohingya, we haven't done anything about finding a long-term solution. Those are two things. Those are two challenges that we've been given, and we failed at those. I think that we should be doing much more than we are. We have, I think it's right for us to be on the Security Council, but only if we're not Donald Trump's mini-me, which was always my criticism of Boris Johnson. I think that we should have a distinctive voice, but I think that that voice is one which, which echoes the views of many other countries around the world. And I think that there is... I'm not saying that we would take a, a leadership role. It would need to be a collective thing. But I think that the stage has been vacated by uh, America. And I think that given the vacuum that has been created, I think there is a role for other nations to work together. And Britain should be and could be playing a leading role in that. Very good. Pretty good minute yeah. and a half, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so now for the fun part, where we, we ask for some rapid-fire answers to a bunch of black and white questions. And this always goes well for Labour. Yeah, I know, I know. Really <laughs> Emily, who's your favourite Tory? Speaker. <laughs> Just she got us on that one. <laughs> <laughs> who's your favourite Tigger? I don't know. No? No, I don't know. None of them? No. Biggest political regret? Can I come back to that? I don't know. I don't okay. know. Or I, don't be, I'm yeah. I don't want to be dishonest about mm -hmm. it. I need to think about okay. it. Then, then yeah. who's, your, who's your political hero? <laughs> oh, um, Robin Cook. I was a cookie. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, I won my very marginal seat. 
against the background of, uh, of the Iraq war. And I was on the, the Iraq war demonstrations and I was part of the Labour Party. There was a very big part of the Labour Party that was against the Iraq war. And Robin was, was a leading part of that. And Robin, Robin did me the honour of coming to speak at a public meeting in my constituency. And I won my seat by 484 votes. Mm. So I was going to be a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> Political villain. <laughs> Beer or wine? <laughs> I'm not allowed to say both. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> you can put them in order. <laughs> Probably wine. Wine, all right. Would you like to do PMQs every week? No, I really wouldn't. Uh, it's really tiring. I don't know how they do it every week. I enjoy it when I do it. I can't pretend I don't enjoy it because I do enjoy it. But, you know, doing it once every six months is uh, it's kind of... I could probably do it once every three months if they want to, mm. you know, give me that opportunity. But uh, doing it every single week is really difficult, I think. I think it must be really difficult. I, have you read the, you read the book on, mm. uh, on PMQs? Yeah. I think that was a really interesting, the way in which it has developed into such a big thing now. Mm. And in some ways it's positive because the Prime Minister does need to sort of audit what all the different departments are doing. And because she's going into PMQs, all the different departments have to say, uh, Prime Minister, can we just fess up to a problem that might come up in PMQs? And so in a way, it's kind of quite a good way of kind of keeping control over everything. So, but that must be hard enough, you know, that must be just impossible to do it as PM. I find it challenging enough just to do it as opposition every six months, so. And who should be Labour's first female Prime Minister? Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, Jeremy's going to be Prime Minister until, well, Jeremy's going to be our next Prime Minister and, and he'll be leader of the Labour Party until he decides not to be. He's very popular with the party and there's not a vacancy. Margaret Thatcher, hero or villain? Villain. Why? I think Margaret Thatcher divided our country in a way that nobody else has. I think that she saw everything in black and white and I think that the way in which she decimated so many of our communities is something that shouldn't be forgotten or forgiven. Very clear answer. Um, I think it might be time to invite our podcast panellists up now to chew over a few political dilemmas. I definitely encourage our journalists to stay up here, but they're free to go. If you <laughs> 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 I was going to make way for the Europeans. Okay, I come on up, Lena. Sorry, my biggest yep. political gr mm -hmm. regret, I've just thought of it. I voted in favour of ID cards, and I didn't think that that was right. And I, when I voted for it, I didn't think it was right. And, but I had just been elected as a Labour MP on a Labour manifesto, and I thought I should be a Labour MP. But actually, what you have to do is you have to be a Labour MP, but you also have to be true to your conscience. Yeah. That's my Sometimes regret. it takes time to find your voice. Yeah, but it, you know, it was only like six weeks in, but <coughs> that's my regret, actually, and I learned a lot from that. Thank you for the honesty. That's right. So the next thing that we do in this section is we deal with the problem of a listener. And so this is a real problem. We have not paid someone to come up with this dilemma. I'm going to read it out and then ask the panellists to, to say how we should solve this issue for the reader. Dear Politico, I'm a new mum of twins and I've been looking for affordable daytime activities for them. We've started going to library rhyme time, baby session sing-alongs at libraries in South London. I was really excited to go and use a public facility. It's one of the few things that have survived the cuts and to meet new friends. It turns out I was the only mum there. All the rest were paid nannies looking after rich people's kids. That's not fair. Plus, they all wanted me to hire them. So the <laughs> library became a recruitment centre. What should I do? Should I report it so actual mums without nannies can use the service? Should I speak to the nannies privately? Or should I drop it because it's not fair to punish the kids? New mum, South London. <laughs> I had uh, three kids and, and for the time when I was on maternity leave, I would go to various events, both public events, but also private ones as well. 
And I found that you were right. There were like lots of nannies there. But my kids loved it. I mean, they mm -hmm. saw the other kids. And I found it, there were some things which, you know, it was, it was quite good to talk to, to nannies who had responsibility for youngsters about. But there were certain personal things about just having a child and getting used to the idea of part of your body being out there about to break its neck, you know, that, that, that a nanny couldn't quite understand in the way that a mum did. So I found that joining lots and lots of antenatal and postnatal groups helped me to build up a network of friends who were, who were mums. Mm -hmm. But in the end, you know, the public facilities are there and it's just important that the, they're used by as wide a range of people as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, to a certain extent, it was always the criticism of children's centres when they were first set up was that middle-class parents were, were able to access them and it wasn't really supposed to be just for them, it was supposed to be for other, other kids too. But actually, it isn't for either, it is for both. Mm -hmm. And the challenge for the organisation is to make sure that it's open to everybody, but also that people know that they're welcome. Now, Jack might be the wrong half of the couple that I'm asking now, <laughs> no, but you're so. about to become a dad. <laughs> Absolutely. What's your answer here? I can imagine being frustrated by that situation, but I think it's really, like, it's great that kids of different social classes are mixing together mm. and that's what we want. And imagine the shoe on the other foot coming in and saying, ah, oh, there's too many working class children, I'm going to report it, would not be cool. So I think you just have to, you know, hope that all the kids, all their qualities rub off on each other. Mm -hmm. But I think also these groups are also quite supportive for the mothers themselves or for the nannies themselves. Yeah. You You've know, got to have more than one then to be a support or the but it's, <laughs> but it's also themselves. Yeah, or sometimes the fathers, but it's very, it's very isolating having, having young children. And yeah. so meeting up with other parents or other nannies is, uh, is a really important thing. And as I say, the kids then benefit from yeah. being in a gang. You know. Lena. Well, look at it positively. She has so many choices now of nannies in case of any. <laughs> <laughs> Just got to get some money. Just get some money, new mom from South London. But no, I don't think they should be mixed. I think when, when you register your child, uh, if you are not paid as much as the others, uh, you, sh you should enjoy what the uh, public facilities are offering for underprivileged people or less paid people. And uh, it's not, it's, it's absolutely, I agree with you, it's, not, it's good to, to mix everyone, the rich and the poor or the middle class, but as well, the rich can, can do something else and maybe build more centers or build more uh, crash, as we call them in Brussels. But um, no, I, I disagree. They should be a criteria. Mm -hmm. And she should report them, absolutely. Oh, okay, I love division on the panel. Now, we've got to keep this moving along or we'll get kicked off. So Andrew, I'm going to turn to you for the next section. So what we do on our regular episodes is we get people to nominate a WTF moment and a thumbs up moment for the week. So I'm going to ask you, Andrew, to nominate an EU WTF moment from this week. Okay, I think I have to go slightly further back, but there was one a couple of weeks ago. Um, some of you may be familiar with Operation Sophia which is a, a mission in the Mediterranean. It's meant to be an anti-people smuggling network. And the European Union uh, voted to renew its mandate, but they man this is a naval mission, but the caveat was you're not allowed to use your ships. <laughs> so uh, as EU WTF moments go, it was a couple of weeks ago, but it was hard to beat. Now, it's only fair if we've done an EU WTF, we should do a UK WTF. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a new brand name. <laughs> okay, let's flip it. We're going to flip it. Is there a non-WTF in British politics in the last week? Can we think of something that's like flat out normal that happened that we'd like to, to nominate? Or even a thumbs up. We do EU thumbs up as well. So UK yeah. thumbs up, if anyone can think of something you would give mm. a thumbs up to. They want to organise in July or in June like a, a big conference on freedom of expression and freedom of journalists uh, together with uh, Mrs. Amal Clooney. 
And, um, so this is Jeremy Hahn appointing a Mao Clooney. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's very good. I think it's a, it's a thumbs up. Uh, it brings back uh, people to, to remember that uh, UK is not only about Brexit, that uh, UK is an international player, on, especially on democracy, on freedom of expression, on uh, human rights. Um, I believe that's, that's a huge thumbs up for, for UK. Okay, Emily, are you going to continue the Amal Clooney appointment when you become a foreign secretary? It depends what they're doing. I mean, I think that's always the thing, isn't it? Is that we have a foreign secretary at the moment who talks a good talk, but the question is, what's he going to do? Because you know, that's what matters. You know, that's what we should measure people against. Is uh, when you're in government, you have the you have the the reins on power. You can do things. You can't. You don't just have to talk. Just get on and do something, and then I'll approve. Okay, I've got a. This is definitely not a thumbs up. I guess it's a WTF. Three Met police officers are being disciplined for what is said to be their participation in a protest about Brunei. And I think the protest was them holding a pride flag or being given a pride flag. I don't think they literally turned up to, to rock the barricades or anything like that. Any reactions? Is that the one I was at? I, I'm not quite sure, to be honest. I should have done my homework. But it's three Met Police officers uh, who are now in trouble because they allowed themselves to be photographed with pride flags at a Brunei protest. Okay, so there was a Brunei protest outside the Dorchester yesterday, mm -hmm. and it was really, really good-natured. And there were lots of people there waving flags. It's okay for, for Met Police officers to be in uniform waving flags at Pride, but not to be holding a flag outside the Dorchester. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have thought that was appropriate. I think that is a complete overreaction, frankly. I was really proud to be part of that demonstration. I thought that was Britain at its best. <laughs> no, I agree. I'm gay. I don't want to be stoned to death. <laughs> um, <laughs> any other reactions there, or shall we wrap it up? Uh, positive note to end <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> we all agree not to stone me to death. I'm glad that that is how we are going to wrap up this episode of EU Confidential. I want to thank all of our panelists, and in particular, Emily Thornbury. You've been a great sport, so yes. thank you for joining us here on a Sunday afternoon. And for those of you who don't know about it, there is literally a politico.eu website. We're not just a bunch of American on politico.com we also have a great weekly print newspaper and you can download that for free on our app and you can also have it home delivered we make you pay the postage but that's all so if you ever want to get us delivered to your doorstep you can do that just as easily as having it in your inbox or as part of your browsing so thank you so much for coming to podcast live we've enjoyed this whole event and uh, thank you very much we hope you keep listening to eu confidential